Well, if you turn in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John will be in John chapter 12 this morning. John 12, verses 12 through 19. Turn your hearts to the reading of God's Word. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Grass withers, flower fades, but God's Word abides forever. Let's pray. Father, as we come before Your Word and under Your Word this morning, pray that You would, as we always need, we need Your Spirit to be at work in us, to make us attentive, to unite our hearts, to turn our hearts to your truth. Father, work in each and every one of us that we would see more of who our Lord is and that our hearts would worship and that in seeing, Lord, that you would change us from one degree of glory into another, that you would conform us more and more to the image of our Savior. We pray for your glory and for our joy. In Christ's name, amen. Well, there have been some remarkably memorable entrances of characters in movies and television over the years. One of the, the most iconic is the first appearance of the villain in the Star Wars franchise. Star Wars, A New Hope, After the beginning scroll, you see this lone ship, and it's being fired upon, and and then you see the ship that's coming after it, which we've learned now is a Star Destroyer, and then soon that little ship is swallowed up into the belly of the Destroyer. And then you hear this sound, and the door is popped open, and, and a little laser fight ensues with guys who can't shoot very well, any of them, actually, if you've watched it, and, uh, and they continue to, to fire, and, and then out through the smoke steps an imposing figure, tall, dressed in all black, a flowing cape, something on his chest, a, a full black mask and a black helmet, and the first time you hear him speak in the whole movie, He's actually holding one of the, the, the rebels, one of the men on the ship, up in the air just with his left arm, questioning him, and then all of a sudden throws him into the wall. So that's the first time you meet Darth Vader. And then there's another movie, one of my favorite movies, 
Raiders of the Lost Ark. There you see a man from behind with what appears to be some locals in the jungle, and he's, he's in the shadows the whole time. His face is obscured. He's wearing a leather jacket and a brown fedora. The tension seems to be quite high in the jungle among those around him, but he seems unconcerned and just very cool and level-headed. And then they cut to him by a pool of water, and he pulls out this map. And then one of the men that's with him pulls out a revolver, and the next thing you hear is this And he snaps the revolver out of the guy's hand with his whip and starts curling it up and steps into the light, and you see Indiana Jones. Or maybe a character that's not a human, the movie Jurassic Park. The first time you meet T-Rex, it's a rainy, stormy night, it's dark, and all of a sudden, bashing through this huge fence crushing cars, and then you see uh, the, the eye come right next to the window, and you hear this like roar and growl, and then this snort, and the windows fog up. You know you're in trouble. And then who can forget television? If you know me, you know that I've watched Seinfeld once or twice in my life. And who can forget how Kramer enters into Jerry's apartment? It's iconic the way he just jumps right into it. I won't try and reenact it because people will not just laugh with me, they'll laugh at me at that. But each of these entrances tell us a bit about the character that entered. They give us hints as to their nature, as to who they are. And in our text this morning, we have another entrance, the entrance of Jesus. Now, it It isn't his first in the canvas of history, but it is one that reveals just a great deal and corrects so much misunderstanding about who this man is, even even when the, the, the correction isn't fully understood at the time of the correction. And though this isn't his first entrance recorded, it is actually recorded in all four gospel accounts, which speaks to the, the massive significance of what we have before us. This is really a remarkable and unique event in the life of our Lord Jesus. It's dramatically different, dramatically different than how He had interacted with the crowds throughout His earthly ministry. We've seen Him not present Himself, but actually withdraw Himself from the acclaim of the public. In Matthew 12, 19, which actually quotes from Isaiah 42, after Jesus heals a man with a withered hand and and, and told the people not to make him known, we have these words quoted from Isaiah 42. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. That's the description of someone unassuming, not seeking to grab a claim. And Peter, after he confessed him, As the Christ, the Lord strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that He was the Christ. And then in John 6.15, after He had fed the 5,000 men, and surely there were many more women and children, we read this in 6.15, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take Him by force to make Him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by Himself. So why the change? Why is it so different 
on this day. Why does Jesus now actually bring himself into the city, bring himself to where the crowds are? Well, that's what I hope to answer as we go through this text this morning. And in it, we're going to see the nature of this entrance and the nature of the one who entered more clearly. And to get, that, to, get to that point, we're going to see it in two parts. We're going to look at the crowd, uh, and not just the crowd, but the entrance itself, and then the conveyance. What, what was conveyed through this? What did this communicate? What does this mean? So the crowd. Let's, let's look then at verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Now, the next day here is Sunday. It's presumably Palm Sunday of what we call Holy Week. And if you look back at chapter, uh, verse 1 of chapter 12, we see that Jesus is in Bethany at the time. He's in a town that, that's on the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives, which itself was on the eastern edge of Jerusalem. Now, if we back up a tad further, we see that Jerusalem was, it was a bit crowded with pilgrims at this time. They came to celebrate the Feast of the Passover. We see that in 1155. But not only that, this crowd was looking for Jesus and wondering whether he would actually come to Jerusalem and celebrate the feast with them. We see that in the next verse. And they were looking for him, most likely, most of them, because they either witnessed or they had heard about the raising of Lazarus from the dead. See, that was a fairly extensive miracle, and it's one of which news would have traveled very quickly throughout the countryside. And Jesus was gaining popularity and, and notoriety even more than he had before, and that actually didn't settle well with some people. The crowd was looking for him, but other people it didn't settle well with, and that was the Jewish leaders, and they were also looking for him. They weren't looking for him so that they could celebrate him. They were looking in order to arrest him. They actually had issued orders that if anybody knew where he was, they were charged to tell them. So it is this crowd that heard that Jesus was coming. So what did they do with that? What did they do with that knowledge that Jesus was coming? Well, they didn't turn him in. Rather, look at verse 13. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, there are a few things in this that we need to look at. First, they take branches of palm trees. Now, why did they do that? Were they just laying around and, and easy to grab? Not exactly. Obviously, they were around in that area. But the palm tree was generally considered a, a symbol of righteousness. Psalm 92.12 talks about the, kind of the relation between the palm and righteousness. And in the Old Testament, uh, these, these palm branches were associated with the Feast of Tabernacles. You could look at Leviticus 23, particularly verse 40. But around that feast time, they were associated with it. People would wave them and sing. And by the time of Jesus, though, um, these branches had become, they'd morphed more into a symbol of the Jewish nation as a whole. They were actually at this time probably more, at least in the minds of the people who waved them, more of a nationalistic symbol. They were a, a symbol of pride in the nation. They were present at different times throughout Jewish history uh, when the, the, the people had, had celebrated 
uh, victories, and they pointed to that pride that people had in their nation. Now, quite likely, the people grabbed and waved them for these host of reasons. They had hopes and they had expectations regarding Jesus. And one of them that I'm sure was very strong was that they believed that he would be the one to save the nation from their occupiers. Now, second, they cry Hosanna. They cry Hosanna. And this comes from one of what's known as the Hallel Psalms. And these psalms were sung each morning by the temple choir during the Feast of Tabernacles. But they were, they were also associated with Passover, first with the ta- with Feast of Tabernacles, but also with Passover. And when the people would get to the Hosanna, what they would do is that they would wave the branches. And this actually comes from Psalm 118, verses 25 to 26, which we read for our call to worship this morning. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Hosanna essentially means save us or give us success or give salvation now. It was a a shout of praise. It was a a cry of triumph. that, That was its primary focus, but I think here it had a bit of petition, a bit of hope involved, a a longing for that salvation. They cried out, Hosanna, there's, there's trust in God expressed and celebration and thanksgiving, but it's not fully understood. Okay, they, they know that they're praising God, but what they're praising Him for is not exactly why He comes. The expectations were more nationalistic, for the most part, than spiritual. They wanted the occupiers out of the Holy Land. And you can see the part that they cried right after Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're pronouncing blessing on a, on a specific person. They're not willy-nilly just throwing around blessings here and there and everywhere. It, they're not doing that and just blessing in the name of the Lord, whoever it is that comes. They're actually blessing the one who comes in the name of the Lord. You see the difference between that? There's a difference between blessing um, in the name of the Lord, anyone who comes, and blessing he who comes in the name of the Lord. But who do they believe that person to be? We see this addition, right? Even the king of Israel. Now, this is not taken from Psalm 118, but it identifies who they believe or who they hope Jesus to be at this point in time. They want Him to be the King of Israel. They are announcing the coming of the King, just as the wise men came from the east to pronounce the birth of the King of the Jews. Here the crowd announced, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, How is it that Jesus came into the city? The text says, he found a young donkey and sat on it. Now, the other gospel accounts give us much more detail in regard to this. John, at this point in time, which isn't always like John, but he's very succinct at this point. Uh, But I think it's worth looking at the gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verses 29 to 35, where it says, When he drew near to Bethphage and and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, 
where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Now, as I said, John didn't make all that explicit, but what John says by no means is in contradiction to that at all. It, all he tells us is that the Lord sat on the donkey, and what this tells us is that the Lord didn't just happen upon a donkey. He didn't go, oh, look, there, I'm tired of walking. Give me the donkey. That, that's not what happened. And so in this, we see his deity, his omniscience, his sovereign control of the entire situation. This wasn't happenstance. It was very intentional that he rode this donkey. He came into town with a purpose and a message. So in appearance, this is what happened that day. Our question that remains, though, is why? Why did it happen? And beyond that, not just why, but what did it all mean? And, and, and what does it mean for us today? What does this convey about the one who entered on that Palm Sunday? So let's pick up where we left off with Jesus on a young donkey. Why ride a donkey? Why not just walk in? He was obviously accustomed to walking for 33 years. Why not just walk on in? Well, it tells us something about the one who wrote it. You know, today you can, you can actually tell a fairly decent amount about someone by the car they drive. If you see a minivan filled with car seats, you probably know that the guy who's driving it is a father. If you see a, a truck that, that looks like it's been beat up and it's muddy and it, it's got a trailer hitch and, and all kinds of stuff, maybe hay stuck inside, you probably can assume that that person does some physical labor, probably some type of farm work. You can figure these things out by the, the things that they enter on, by the things that they drive. And Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey's colt, on a foal that had never been sat upon. That's intended to tell us something. And, and we can think about it this way. What did he not enter upon? He didn't come in on a on a mighty steed. He didn't come in pulled behind some, some majestic horses in, in a chariot waving to the crowds. If you enter that way, it would symbolize something completely different. It would symbolize victory and, and war and power and might. That, that may have been what the people longed for and perhaps even expected. They wanted to be liberated from their oppressors. But listen, you don't wage war on the foal of a donkey. You don't go into battle on a donkey. A donkey is an animal for labor. A donkey is there for helping someone who cannot or should not walk on their own. The donkey is an animal of peace. And what we see Jesus do is he very intentionally sat upon the foal of a donkey. 
So what does that communicate? Well, John helps us with this as he writes after his short statement of Jesus having sat on the donkey with, just as it is written. That tells us so much right there. Just as it is written. That phrase tells us that that Jesus did this to fulfill Scripture, to fulfill what was written about the Messiah, to fulfill what was said of him throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. So what was it that was written? John writes, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, the bulk of this quotation is from the Old Testament book of Zechariah, um, mainly from Zechariah 9.9, where it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, one thing when you hear that quote that you might notice right away is that Zechariah starts with rejoice greatly, and what John starts with is fear not. So what gives with that? (laughs) Why quote something and have it say something different? Well, the meaning doesn't change in any appreciable way, but this almost certainly, this fear not, refers to another place in Scripture. It very likely refers to Isaiah 40, verse 9, where Isaiah wrote, Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. That text in Isaiah is speaking of good news brought to Zion, that the people need not fear because behold, their God is coming. That's Jesus. Jesus is coming in, and Jesus is is bringing the good news. In fact, He Himself is the good news. But with that, so we see the fear not, but it would actually help us to look at more of the context of the Zechariah quote. So we just read verse 9, but if you look at verses 10 and 11 as well, we learn a little bit more about what this coming in on a donkey's colt says. Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. So what we see here is that the coming of this king who comes in on a donkey, behold your God, who comes in, who brings salvation, he is also associated with the end of war. Along with that's the declaration of, of, and and speaking of peace to the nations with a rain that extends from sea to sea, from the rivers to the ends of the earth. And then further in verse 11, we see how this king is connected with the blood of God's covenant that results in the prisoners being set free. So that all is to be associated with Jesus as he rides into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. 
the end of war, speaking of peace to the nations, a reign from sea to sea, and the blood of the covenant shed that sets prisoners free. I want you to think of maybe earlier in the Gospel of John. John 1.29, early on when we see Jesus come on the scene, he's coming out to the River Jordan. John the Baptist is there, and he sees Jesus coming. And what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then consider the context of the feast that these pilgrims are celebrating, that the Jewish nation is celebrating at this time. It's Passover, where the blood of the Lamb was spread on the doorpost of the children of Israel to spare them from the the plague of the the death of the firstborn, from judgment. And and we know what is coming in this week of Jesus' life. His blood will be shed for the sins of His people to set them free from slavery, not to Egypt or to Rome or to any other power, but to set them free from slavery to sin. So this action of Jesus and the words that John points us to, they're a statement Though it's not, I don't think, clearly grasped at the time, it's a statement about the character and the purpose of the one who entered. It tells us that he comes not as a, as a conquering war hero in general, but comes as the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, Prince of Peace. But I think also that this warns us against placing our expectations and our desires above what Scripture tells us. Folks, too often on either side of the aisle in our country, politically, people seek to co-opt God for their positions rather than have God determine their positions. Somebody tries to say, this party is the party of God, or this party is, or these things are, and and we're going about it all wrong. We're trying to conform Jesus to our ideas and our politics and our wants and our desires, rather than to conform our wants and our desires to the person of Jesus. And it's happening everywhere. And it's likely happening in your own heart. In one way or another. You see, Jesus comes as king. That's absolutely true here. He comes in majesty. But not with a majesty of this world or conformed to this world. Rather, he comes with a majesty of humility and gentleness, a majesty of grace and compassion, a majesty that will lead to his own death, yet followed by a glorious resurrection and ascension, and eventually, in his return, to set all things right. 
You see, folks, the kingdom of God is not conformed to the kingdom of this world. And we can't seek to do that. Jesus did not conform to the patterns of this world. And that's a massive example and call for us in all of life to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We have to know God's Word to be transformed. We have to know it We have to study it. We have to trust the work of the Spirit in our lives to conform our hearts and our minds to His ways. We need to be listening more to this than we are to any cable news station or Twitter or newspaper or friend. Now, what we read next in John shouldn't actually be surprising to us. (laughs) Sometimes I think it does. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. They didn't didn't get what was going on as he walked in. Well, actually, as he rode in. And then it says, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things had been written about him and had been done to him. John and the other disciples weren't thinking of what Zechariah wrote when this occurred. It took something more for them to get it. One commentator, a guy named Leslie Newbegin, comments very insightfully on this. It's a little longer of a quote, but I think it's super helpful. He says, No doubt there was a sense in which they understood very well what the crowds were doing. They were hailing Jesus as king. And what is wrong with that? Is not Jesus is Lord the fundamental Christian confession? Yes, but only if the meaning of the predicate is wholly controlled by the subject. So what he's saying is only if Jesus, if Lord is controlled by Jesus. Okay, that's what he's saying there. The sentence, Jesus is Lord, is a true confession only if the subject has taken total control of the predicate. Only if sovereignty is defined by Calvary. Only if the lordship is understood in terms of washing one another's feet. But that requires a total subversion of of accepted human axioms. A total revolution which can only be the work of the sovereign spirit himself. That is why Peter will not and cannot understand when Jesus washes his feet but we'll understand afterward. That happens just a chapter later. And that is why it was and could only be after Jesus was glorified and the Spirit was given that the disciples could understand what had been done on that road from Bethany to Jerusalem. So when people shout, Jesus is Lord, we have to make sure that Jesus is what controls Lord. Because too often we define what Lord is and we conform Jesus to that. And here we have the disciples. And we have to ask why the disciples, who'd been with Jesus for three years, walking with him, were unable to understand this. And I think along with what Newbigin wrote, 
they just could not grasp because their minds were focused more on the kingdom of this world in many ways. They couldn't grasp that one who had shown so much power and so much ability could die in a shameful way. That's, that's why Peter said, Get, you know, there's no way, Lord. A.W. Pink wrote, he said, the honors of the earthly kingdom attracted. The shame of the cross repelled them. So even, even think about James and John, what did, what did their mother ask? Like, can they sit at your right and your left in the kingdom? That's not understanding the kingdom of God rightly. And folks, none of us probably do. But we have to learn to be conformed to that. So the honors of the earthly kingdom attracted. The shame of the cross repelled him. It was because of this that on the resurrection morning, he said to the two disciples, O oh, fools and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Yes, there had to be the sufferings before the glory, the cross before the crown. Folks, you and I, all of us, live in a world that is steeped in ways that are contrary to the kingdom of God, that are contrary to Scripture. We have marinated in the things of this world too much. And we need corrected by our Lord who entered Jerusalem on a donkey. We need our lives and our way of thinking transformed by Scripture and by the Spirit of God at work in our lives. Because it was when the Spirit was poured out, when Jesus was glorified, that they understood these things. You and I have such an amazing advantage over the disciples. I know you might think, seriously, like, they got to walk with Jesus daily. Yeah, we've had the Spirit with us since our new birth, <laughs> in us, changing us, guiding us, and we have the full Scriptures, God's Word to us. We can look back and see this and read it, and quite often some of us will go, how did they not get that? But all of us, to be honest, would have said, I wouldn't have gotten it either. I would have been wanting him to kick Rome out just as quick as anybody else. Thank God for the Spirit at work in us through His Word. So that then we can look back with humility and go, I would have been just as dumb and thank the Lord He's at work in my life. And may He work more and more and help me see the blind spots I have in every single day of how I live and how I react in my family, at work, how I act in a way that is more conformed to the kingdom of this world than it is to the kingdom of our God to the kingdom of Christ. Let the entrance of a king on a donkey transform us, change the way we think. And you know what? I, I love how John closes this episode in Jesus' life. Verse 19, So the Pharisees said to one another, 
you see that they're, they're, you're gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Because remember, they, they told him, they had told the, the crowd, if you see Jesus, tell us, because we're going to arrest him. And he comes riding in on a donkey. It's not like a getaway car, okay? He can't run away from them. He's on a donkey, and everybody's saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And they're looking at each other going, look at that! It's not working! The whole world has gone after him. The Pharisees express their consternation and their frustration and despair, but also unaware, they speak immense truth. They refer to the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy without knowing it, that Jesus' kingship will extend to the nations. The whole world is going to come after Jesus, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, he will call to himself. Jesus shall reign. This one who came in on a donkey will one day come on that mighty horse, and he will set everything perfectly right. And we may suffer for a little while now, but the God of all grace will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us, and he will come back and reign for eternity in fullness. He came then not as a conquering hero, not in the way they thought about it, but he conquered sin and death. He came as a humble, gentle, lowly king on a young donkey, and our expectations are corrected. We see that the way of the kingdom of God is much different than the kingdom of ourself and the kingdom of this world, and may he conform us more and more to the image of the king who came on a donkey. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and your truth. Thanks for how you love us and care for us. And thanks how you don't let us stay in our own futile way of thinking. But you've given us the mind of Christ and you transform and you conform us more and more as your children into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. Work that in us more and more each and every day. Thank you for how you challenge and, and push us to move out further from the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of the beloved Son. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.